Father, thank you that churches are people, not buildings, not seats, not instruments. Churches are people. Come and be with us. Walk among us as we think about these people and press into our hearts the things that you would have here for us that we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now I want you to know that it is a profoundly encouraging thing for a pastor when his people do what he encourages them or counsels them to do. I don't know how many doors were opened by husbands for wives in the parking lot last week after the service. But I do know that one husband pulled his car under the portico out here, and when his wife came out the door, he hopped out of the driver's seat, went around the car, opened the door on the passenger side, and she, being unaccustomed to such behavior, (laughs) hopped into the driver's seat thinking (laughs) he wanted her to drive. And I'm not going to mention names here, but it's hard for a pregnant woman to get behind the wheel of a car to drive her family home. And when asked about this, he said, it's what the pastor told me to do. And I'm going to do it, as long as he's still around. So... I hope you'll keep doing it after I'm gone, David. (laughs) Now, what I wanted to stress with you last week, and, and for those of you who weren't here last week, that was just an aside. I mean, that was just one of those weird things that's not in the notes, and it just kind of pops into your head, for who knows what reason. I'm not going to attribute it to the Holy Spirit. That's, that's probably not it. But last week... I want to distress with you that the gospel, and there is a content to the gospel, there's no question about it, and and at the center of that gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ, which means at the center of ministry is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to distress with you last week that there's something else at the center of ministry, and that is people. The first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans lead somewhere. They have application. They're not just ideas for our heads. They move in a specific direction. And in the case of these Roman Christians, as uh, would have application really to all of us, I suggested to you last week that the gospel moves in the direction of people learning what it means to love. What it means to lay down your life for your brother or for your sister. The gospel moves in the direction of the kind of love that produces a kind of unity in the church that you will not find anyplace else. 
It leads to the kind of unity that transcends all kinds of divisions and distinctions. And we're going to see in this chapter that that those distinctions extend beyond ethnic distinctions or racial distinctions and divisions. The gospel creates the kind of unity, creates the kind of trajectory in which anyone who walks into the midst of an assembly is welcomed. That's what Paul says in those chapters, 13, 14. Welcome one another. Welcome one another. That's the kind of culture, that's the kind of environment that the gospel produces. And the gospel moves in the direction not only of the kind of change that leads to real love and leads to real unity, but it leads to the kind of transformation that becomes missional, that becomes outward-facing. The gospel creates hearts that care about one another and about the nations. A gospel that does not result in love being expressed, unity being expressed, and a concern for the nations. These are the things that are in chapters 13 through 15. A gospel that does not produce these things is a fraudulent gospel. It's not a true gospel. And you can stuff your head full of notions about sin and wrath. I'm a Facebook person. I, I don't live there I, I, I get there occasionally, especially when I get to post a picture of my grandchildren. That's really fun. It's interesting. You put some really profound statement on Facebook and you get two or three likes. You put a picture of a grandchild out there, it's a hundred in a heartbeat. And I get these Facebook, Facebook things, these posts from this, from this guy who just, I mean, it's always about sin and wrath. I'm like, okay, I get that. Right? I mean, it just kind of feels like sin and wrath, sin and wrath, sin and wrath. Wake up, wake up. Well, okay. But I need more than that, and I want more than that. And in fact, I want more than justification. I want more than propitiation and substitution and, and, and all of these technical things that are crammed into Romans 3 and following. I want to be at peace with God, Romans 5.1. But I want to be changed. I want to be a different person. And that's why I love 6, 7, and 8 and the outworkings of 6, 7, and 8 through 9, 10, and 11 and Paul arguing that Jew and Gentile make up one new body and these former distinctions just flat go away. And I love chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I preached eight sermons on it, maybe nine, because it's about transformation. I want to be different. You see, notions that just stick in our heads that don't go anywhere, that's not a true gospel. It's not a true gospel. Paul writes this letter to people living at the center of power, the Washington, D.C. of his day, Rome. And how does he describe the gospel? He describes the gospel as the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Power. And here's what you have in chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. 
You have people in Rome. And in verses 21 through 23, people in Corinth. Remember, Paul was in Corinth. He writes this letter from Corinth. In these two passages, you have people who have been changed by the gospel. They've been changed. As you look at this passage, let me suggest to you that Paul, very subtly, is continuing to press the things that he's been concerned about in chapters 13, 14, and 15. Right? It seems like when you get to the end of chapter 15, and there's that amen there, that chapter 16 is a kind of a postscript, just a sort of a list of folks that he would like for, would like to greet. But I really think there's more going on here. I don't think this list of names is at all arbitrary. I think Paul is continuing to press the kind of agenda that he has been pressing from chapter 12 through chapter 15. Here's what you see. You see a few things. In the first place, think about Paul, what Paul has been talking about most recently. Right, this, is the, this is the thesis. This is my contention that Paul's continuing to press, to argue for and even to illustrate the things that he's been talking about in chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. And he's using these names, these people, to argue for these things and, in fact, to illustrate the realities of the application of the gospel to specific people's lives in specific ways. Here's here's the first thing. What, What has Paul been talking about most recently in this letter? He's been talking about his plans to travel to Spain, chapter 15, verses 22 through 33. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by you on my journey there. That's his plan. That's his desire. Remember we said it last week. I stole this from one of the commentators. Paul wants to be the author of the first Hispanic ministry. He wants to go to Spain and take the gospel there because the gospel's not been there. And he's coming to Rome, he says in the first chapter, because he wants to be a blessing to them so that they might be a blessing to him, so that they might enjoy one another's company and fellowship and mutual strengthening. But when you get to chapter 15, you know that there's something else going on here. Paul wants their help. He wants their financial support. He asks for their prayers in verses 30 through 32. What do missionaries need? They need two things. They need other things, but they need two things. They need your prayers, and they need your money. They need your support. That's what Paul's asking for, right? What's he been pressing? What's he been talking about? He's been talking about the need for the gospel to go beyond where he is in these regions where he has worked to regions that are yet unreached. And he wants the Romans to partner with him in this. And it's really interesting, really interesting in that context, in that setting, that the first person mentioned in this list is Phoebe. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. Paul has this, this is really striking. And I, again, 
I've looked at the commentators. I've, I'm, several of them mention this. It is really, really striking and stunning that the first person mentioned, in fact, the first two people mentioned in a list of names are both women. It's very striking. Paul has this reputation for being a misogynist, a woman hater. And he has this reputation because of other things that he says, various things that he says about order in the churches and marriage and family and that sort of thing. But let me tell you, folks, nothing could be further from the truth with respect to the Apostle Paul. Paul is a paradigm breaker, as was Jesus, when it comes to women and how women live and serve in the church. Fully one-third of the names in this list are the names of women. Phoebe, Prisca, Tryphena, and Tryphosa. One of the commentators wonders if they were twins. Women who worked hard in the Lord. Persis, another who worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, the mother of Rufus, who has been a mother to Paul. Junia is most likely a feminine name. You can read the commentators, make your decision for yourself. She is well-known, that is, highly regarded, highly respected. I think that's the force of the text. Highly regarded among the apostles, known by the apostles. Julia, the sister of Nereus. There are women all over this list of names, and women are the first ones mentioned. That is absolutely a paradigm breaker in this culture. It's absolutely a paradigm breaker. So, you want to know where this business of the breaking down of divisions and barriers extends? It extends beyond ethnic things to gender things, gender distinctions. Look, this is a trajectory that's set by Jesus himself. Read the end of Luke chapter 10. You'll find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Another unprecedented thing. This is in a culture. See, this lands on our ears, and it seems very normal, very ordinary. I look at this congregation. There's a mix of men and women. There's not a division, right side, left side. When I first went to Tanzania nearly 15 years ago, in many of the churches, the women sat on one side, the men sat on the other. In some cases, the men sat in the front and the women sat in the back. The second year that I was there, when I was greeted by the pastors, some hundred pastors and wives, the pastors lined up and greeted me first, and the wives lined up behind them and greeted me after their husbands. That doesn't happen anymore when I go to Tanzania. Not because of me, but because of Bishop Peter Ketula and the way Peter and his wife have modeled for these pastors and wives a kind of behavior, a kind of affection, PDA. You don't do PDA in Tanzania. Peter and Esther hold hands in public, embrace in public, shattering the paradigms in a culture that is very patriarchal and very domineering of women. Jesus did that. When Mary sat at Jesus' feet, this is in a culture where the men sit in the presence of the rabbi, 
and the women gather on the periphery and she is at the feet of the teaching rabbi interacting with him and asking questions. Jesus set the trajectory for this. And Paul perpetuates it. Paul lists Phoebe first. It's a stunning thing. At the tomb, who are the first witnesses to the resurrection? Women whose testimony is not admitted either in Roman courts or in Jewish courts. And who is the first one entrusted with the message of the gospel? Mary Magdalene, the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Jesus commissioned her to say, Go and say to my brothers, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's the first one entrusted by Jesus with the message of the gospel. And who is she? A crazy person. A demon-possessed person. One with a reputation. It's remarkable. And so here is Paul listing in first place this woman, Phoebe. And here's another thing about this. All of the commentators will tell you that he lists her. He could have buried her someplace in the text. It still would have been the same thing. But she's listed here and she is commended, verse 1, she's commended as a servant of the church in Chenchrea to be welcomed by those in Rome and to be helped however she may need help. She doesn't know them. He writes these first two verses commending her to them and she is the one who carried the letter to the Romans to the Romans. She's the one entrusted with the letter to the Romans. And it's interesting that she isn't mentioned in connection with anyone else. And the next thing that is said about her, she's referred to, she's called a servant of the church at Chenchrea. Chenchrea was the port city that served the city of Corinth. She's referred to as a servant of the church. The word in the text is diakonos. It can refer to the office. It can also refer generally to a person who is a servant. There's a big debate about it. Frankly, I think to get caught up in the debate is to lose sight of what it is Paul is saying here about Phoebe. He says first that she's a servant of the church, and then you'll see, this is a good translation of the ESV, she is called a patron of many and of myself as well. If you have an NIV, you will see that it says she was a great help or is a great help to many, myself included. This is a point at which the ESV, it seems to me, gets it right because this is something of a technical term that refers to people who are patrons. It's a somewhat technical term that he's using here. It isn't just that she was a great help to many. The clear implication is Phoebe was a woman of means, significant means, and she served the church with her means And she served others, the church at Chenchrea, and she served others, Paul included. She used her wealth for the kingdom and the extending of the gospel. And she has the means herself to go to Rome. That's why she's not listed, probably, along with anybody else. 
She's going to Rome. She and Paul know each other. He knows her reputation. He knows her service. He knows how she has used her resources for the kingdom and for the gospel. He commends her to them and entrusts this letter to her to deliver to the churches at Rome. Stunning, stunning stuff. So Phoebe. Phoebe becomes then an example of what Paul wants the Romans to be, right? He's been talking about his desire to gain their support so that he can go to Spain. And who's the first person he mentions? A woman of means who has employed her means for the extending of the kingdom and the gospel. Folks, this is what I want you to look like. I want you to look like Phoebe as those who are willing to give up your resources for the sake of the king. She reminds me, some of you, well, most of you probably know the name William Wilberforce. I'm I'm sorry, George Whitfield. John Wesley, George Whitfield. George Whitfield had a patron, the Countess of Huntington, who was similar to Phoebe, used her resources to support Whitfield's ministry, invited her wealthy friends into her home so that they might hear the gospel from George Whitfield, this commoner. And there were maybe as many as a dozen of them, these very wealthy, very influential people in the 1800s, mid-1700s, in the 18th century, who would gather at the countess's, countess's home with a guy named Howell Harris, a crazy Welshman, itinerant preacher, but who was available to teach these people week in and week out. She used her resources, as did Phoebe, for the kingdom and for the extending of the gospel. And Paul lists her first. That's who Phoebe is. And that's what Paul is saying here. Simply this. Be like Phoebe. You have means, you have resources. Put your resources to use for the sake of the kingdom and for the gospel. And then there's a second thing that Paul's interested in, isn't it? He's not only concerned about the mission. He wants to go to Spain. He wants the Romans to be involved with him. He wants them to be partners. He continues to be concerned about unity in the church. He continues to be concerned about true expressions of love, a love and a unity characterized by by something unlike anything people would see in their contemporary cultural setting. What Paul wants is for these people, if you could take a passage and you could sort of paste that passage over these names, I think the passage would be Galatians 3.28. You know Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
No Jew, no Greek. No slave, no free. No male, no female. All one in Christ Jesus. All of these names that are here, they are names of men, they are names of women. They are names of free men, they are names of slaves. They are names of the prosperous, they are the names of the poor. There are Latin names, Greek names, Jewish names. Paul, enlisting these names, is arguing for and illustrating the very thing that he wants. Are there still men and women? Of course there are. I could tell you a funny story about an interaction with a seminary classmate of mine and a particular person who was arguing from Galatians 3.28 that all distinctions have been abolished in every sense of the word. I guess I am telling you the story. But I'm not going to tell you the last of it because it's a little bit indiscreet for a mixed group. The point of his question to this person was, do you really mean literally that there are no longer males and females? There are no longer men and women? There are no longer ethnic identities? Jew, Gentile, Italian, Irish, Portuguese, Scottish, Vietnamese? Paul's not saying that. There are still men. There are still women. There are still slaves. There are still free men. There are still ethnic Jews. There are still Gentiles. There is still order both in church and family. See, the reason Paul gets in trouble is because he argues for a particular kind of order in both church and family. And it's an order that I believe the scriptures teach and I fully embrace. We're not talking about order in the church, or who should be ordained or who shouldn't be ordained. We're talking about something entirely different in Romans 15 and 16. We're talking about a kind of love and a kind of unity that causes the world around to be staggered and stunned. And that love and unity is reflected in these names. I've said it already, male and female, with Two female names being listed first. There are Roman names, Andronicus, Junia. There are Greek names, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Hermes, Hermas, Asyncretus. There are Jewish names, Prisca, Aquila, Mary. There are free men and there are slaves. Verses 10 and 11 refer to these people attached to these households. They are not family members in these households. The structure of the language, the construction of the language, suggests that they are slaves attached to these households. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Slaves attached to the household of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Slaves and freemen. And Paul wants to send greetings to them without discrimination and distinction. See, it's all there, isn't it? Gender, ethnicity, class, 
socioeconomic standing, from the wealthy to the poor, from the free to the slaves. Paul, Paul lists these names to illustrate, to argue for the thing that he so longs for, and that is for there to be a unity expressed across these distinctions that is like unto the unity exhibited among the persons of the Godhead. Three persons, distinguishable one from the other, and yet one God, equal in power and glory, existing in an environment, a culture, if you will, of eternal, mutual delight and joy and love without violating the economy that is in the Godhead. The Son, always in submission to the Father. The Holy Spirit, always happy and glad to fulfill the purposes of the Father and the Son. And yet a unity that overflows, a joy, a love, a beauty that overflows in God's works, in creation, and providence, and redemption. Everything that God does is permeated by the reality of his being. And that being, that existence, is an existence of delight and joy and unity and love. And Paul longs for that to be expressed among these Romans. And so he sends greetings. There are probably five churches, as many as five churches, reflected in this text. Certainly the one that meets in the home of Prisca and Aquila. But these others, other house churches scattered around Rome, and he wants them to understand that they are one church. One church. And in the church of Jesus Christ, all of these other things are obliterated. So the names are there to express the agendas that Paul has been pressing, it seems to me, And then here's a third thing, and this is wonderful to think about, folks. Where did these folks come from? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Where did these folks come from? And I don't mean geopolitically. I mean theologically and spiritually. Where did they come from? They came from death and darkness. They came from bondage and sin. They came from being under the wrath of God to being delivered from that wrath, out of that bondage in sin, out of darkness and death, into light and life and freedom in Jesus Christ. They were rescued. Look who's writing this letter. The Apostle Paul. He wasn't born the Apostle Paul. Galatians tells us that he was set apart from his mother's womb for the ministry that God eventually gave to him. But you know his story. You know there was a story that preceded that story. You know that he was a God-hater. He wasn't a God-lover. He thought he was a God-lover. He was actually a God-hater. 
He was delivered from sin and death. Who's he writing to? Or I should say, someone complimented me on my grammar last week, so I guess I should say, to whom was he writing? (laughs) He was writing to people just like himself. People delivered from bondage in sin and death. He mentioned several of his kinsmen. Several of his kinsmen in this passage. Names them. You see this? How did they hear the gospel? Don't you think they probably heard it from Paul? Don't you think they probably heard it from their kinsmen? Let me tell you what I've found. Let me tell you what's happened to me. Let me tell you what God has done in my life. Paul became an evangelist. I, Paul became an evangelist before he became an apostle. He became an evangelist before he became an evangelist. How would they have heard? They heard from the apostle Paul. He refers to Epinetus, the first convert to Christ in Asia. You know what Asia is? I mean, it's this region that extends from the, from the eastern end of Turkey all the way across Turkey. That was referred to as Asia. First convert in Asia. Paul's thinking not only about Turkey, he's thinking about being across into into what is southern Europe, southeastern Europe. Who's the first one? Epinetus. What, What a name to have. The first convert in all of Asia. We don't know if Paul led him to Christ. We don't know how he came to Christ. But he's identified as the first convert. Folks, I think you know this. I think you all know this. But I have to say it in the event that somebody doesn't. People, I'm not being cute here. I'm being being profoundly theological and biblical. People are not born Christians. They are born again Christians. They are born a second time spiritually by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that this morning? You don't become a Christian by walking into a room any more than you become an automobile by walking into a garage. You become a Christian because of the operation of the Spirit of God making blind eyes to see and deaf ears to hear and a dead heart to beat again after the things of God. And you look at what's happening to you now and you say, where was I all of those years? You were dead in trespass and sin. And God, Ephesians 2, has made you alive and raised you up with Christ and seated you with him at the right hand of the Father. God does that and he did it for Epinetus. What a great moniker to have. What a great name. Can't you wait? I I can't wait. Maybe you can't. I can't wait to meet Epinetus. Tell me about it. How did it happen? Who was the instrument? And then there's one more. And I got to stop with this, but just realize that every one of these people, Paul's kinsman, Aristobulus, who actually may have been the brother of Herod Agrippa I. Wow. You look down at 21 to 23. By the way, here's a good trivia question for you. Ask somebody, asks, well, you'll know the answer today, but just to ask somebody who's a Christian, who wrote the letter to the Romans? Ah. Tertius wrote it. He was Paul's amanuensis. 
his secretary, his secretary. He wrote, Tertius wrote the letter. Where did Tertius come from? He came from sin and death and darkness into light and life through Jesus Christ. And then here's this, this, this guy, Erastus, the city treasurer, the city of Corinth. Corinth's a big city. That's a significant position. See how they come from everywhere? But they come from the same place. But here's the greatest one. Here's the best one. Verse 13. Every one of these names has a story behind it, just as is true with you. Every one of these names has a story behind it, but here's the best story. Verse 13. Rufus, chosen of the Lord. Again, one of the commentators makes this observation. Wait a second. They're all Christians. They're all chosen of the Lord. Why is Rufus specifically identified as the chosen of the Lord? Does that name ring any bells for you? Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Rufus. Again, check the commentators. They'll tell you there's a very great likelihood that the Rufus here is the Rufus of Mark 15 a real person with a real story, the son of the man who bore the cross of your Savior. And he and his mother, presumably the wife of Simon, came to believe in Jesus and somehow end up in Rome as recipients of these greetings from the Apostle Paul. And so earnest is Paul in wanting to extend greetings to Rufus and his mother who is unnamed, he reminds them and reminds himself, tells them, reminds himself that she was not only a mother to Rufus, she has been. You hear the affection? She has been a mother to me. What does Paul care about? He cares about the mission of the church. Be like Phoebe. He cares about an extraordinary unity among believers that smashes the kinds of paradigms that characterize life at this time. And he loves to tell the stories of individuals who have been converted, like Rufus. And he wants to go to Spain so there can be more stories. Now, I want you to indulge me for just a few more minutes. Not that you can do anything about it, but I'm sure in a couple of weeks your sermons are going to be a good bit shorter. So I'm going to steal some of that time and make it my own. In verse 2, Paul gives thanks for Prisca and Aquila. And says that all of the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. 
Sometimes as Christians, we can be reluctant to give or to receive thanks. As one person pointed out, we can think that we're being very pious in wanting to direct the attention away from ourselves and to God. And what this person pointed out is that if you do that, you are actually being less pious than the inspired author of Holy Scripture who wanted to thank Prisca and Aquila for putting their lives between him and harm and all of the Gentile churches wanting to thank Prisca and Aquila for their ministry. So, I want to say thanks. I want to be like Paul. And I want to say thanks. I want to say thanks to God first. And I want to say thanks to God that we have stories in our midst like the stories of Rufus and the rest of these folks listed here. The story that comes most immediately to mind for me is Pat Deniger, who is at home with the Lord, who when she came here the first time, we were serving communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and she heard stuff about sin and our neediness, and our unworthiness, and she became angry. She became angry. This is a woman who, when you get to glory, you can ask her. She'll tell you this. She lived in the church for 60 years, and she never heard these things. She became angry. I'm a sinner? I mean, if she could have left, she would have. But she couldn't because the service hadn't concluded and so she stayed. And then she began to hear some things about the sacrament and what the sacrament points to and means for the believer and something brought her back the next week. And somewhere along the way, at 71 years of age, Pat Deniger in the church for 60 years became a Christian. And that's happened for other people here too. And I thank God for it. That in the foolishness of preaching and in the regular business of gathered worship and the administration of the sacraments, God is at work and people's lives get changed. And I thank God for that. And I want to thank the patrons. Paul names Phoebe. I'm not going to name patrons here because there are too many of you. There are just too many. There are too many of you. People who have given regularly to the regular offering, operating budget of this church, which has enabled us to set aside over $40,000 in our regular budget to support ministries locally, nationally, and internationally patrons who have given of their wealth. I I so remember, I cannot forget and I will not forget the gathering of women who heard Esther Ketula talk about the needs of women in Africa and they took it upon themselves to raise a special amount of money so that Esther could hold a conference. This is six or seven years ago. Could hold a special conference for women leaders in the diocese 
They gave of their wealth for the sake of the kingdom and for the extending of the gospel. You did that. People who have given liberally so that I could go to Tanzania every year. People who have given liberally so that the pastors can come to the conference giving tens of thousands of dollars to enable pastors and wives to gather for teaching and refreshment and fellowship. That's you, patrons. People who have given to put wells in villages, given of their wealth from this congregation to put wells in villages. Thank you. I thank you. God thanks you. God smiles. God is, if we can put it this way, grateful for you. People who have supported regularly pastors through the Adopt-a-Pastor program. Thank you. And then the women. Brothers, do you have any idea where this church would be without the women of this church? You probably don't. I do. I know who the leaders are in this congregation. I know the ones who come to me with ideas, with thoughts, with insights, with encouragements. Sometimes, if you can believe this, even with corrections. I'm not going to name you. I'd forget somebody. I'd miss somebody. I don't have the luxury of being in Corinth as opposed to Rome. I'm here. And I don't want to forget names. But I want to thank the women of this church for how you serve, as Phoebe did, this church here. I thank you. And the committees, the committees of this church, missions committee, fellowship committee, hospitality (laughs) committee, these various groups of people made up of men and women, building committee, who through the years have served this church. And I want to thank, I want to thank the officers of this church, my elders and deacons. I want to thank them for their service. I want to thank them for their faithfulness, both those serving now and those who have served. I want to thank them for their patience, their kindness. I want to thank God for the unity that God is giving us. I want to thank the elders and deacons of this church for how earnest and serious they are in the service of Christ in your behalf in this church. And here's what I want to say as this comes to a close. I want to say, excel still more. All of you. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians who had a reputation for love, for unity, for gospel advance. He encouraged them to excel still more. And I want to encourage that among you at Christ the King. 
May love continue to grow. May unity continue to grow. May passion for the mission of Christ continue to grow among us to the praise of the great name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we bow before you with gratitude in our hearts. We're grateful that we can look back across many, many, many years and can see so many evidences of your existence, your presence, your goodness and your power. And humbly before you, we praise you and give you thanks for it all. And together, with united hearts, we cry out to you for the years and decades to come that what is here would truly be only a beginning, that the gospel would live here and grow here and deepen here and from here sound forth throughout this community, this county, this nation, and even to the ends of the earth. Father, we look to you, not demanding, but expecting that because you love your church, you will hear this prayer and you will answer it and we will be stunned by the answer you give. Hear us as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?